All right, I want to jump into the message this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here or you're watching for the first time online, we're doing something completely out of the ordinary for us. We have been in a series entitled Uncomfortable where we have been addressing very difficult topics that make a lot of us uncomfortable, but we have questions about these topics because we're constantly running into them throughout life. And so we've addressed everything from racial tension to death to last week we talked about gender roles and feminism and all, all these different things. And during this series, we've been encouraging you to go online and submit questions anonymously to our poll that I would then answer this morning. You can still send in questions to this. All you have to do is go to pollev.com slash jfirst. That's P-O-L-L-E-V.com slash jfirst, all spelled out. If you, uh, I, I'm probably not going to get through all these questions today because you guys sent a ton of questions, which is really exciting. Um, but if you send in a question Question that makes me laugh, I might give you a shout out. I told you that last year, you guys sent in some good stuff. So um, these questions are real heavy. And so a little levity goes a long way sometimes in a heavy conversation, a heavy topic. So you can still send in questions. We'll refer to that. We might be able to answer a couple of those. Now you might be asking, why would you dedicate a message to answering questions? Well, there's a couple reasons for it. The first is this. I, I've seen this in the New Testament. Paul had this practice where he would would answer the questions from a local church. And in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he starts out that, that passage by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so basically the second half of 1 Corinthians was dedicated to answering the questions that the local church had. And so as a pastor, I have a responsibility to try to teach and try to explain the word of God particularly for the areas in which are concerning to you. And so by having this opportunity, I can better answer the issues that you may have. The other reason why we're going to do something like this, Psalms 119 verses 105 says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right now we need to understand that the, the world is full of darkness and that we're trying to navigate a dark world the best means that we can as believers. And the best way we can do that is by having some light. You know, yesterday I got the opportunity to go hunting again. You're walking out into the woods and the pitch black. If I didn't have a headlamp on or a flashlight to be able to see where I was going, I would trip and fall. But because I had a lamp for my feet and a light for my path, I could see where I was going. It didn't matter how dark the world was around me. And this word is a lamp. It's a light that gives you direction and gives you guidance to navigate the darkness that's all around us. And you don't have to fear the darkness when you have the light. You don't have to fear the darkness when you know where you're going. So that is the heart behind this particular service today. So we're going to be answering your questions, and I just want to jump in. I'm going to try to do this uh, the best I can by the order in which they were, they were ranked. And so if you look on there, you can upvote different questions. And so I'm going to try to answer the ones at the top first um, that might be changing throughout the message. And so I'm doing this based upon where it was at on on Thursday. So with that, we're going to jump in. The first question we have is this. Do capitalist or socialist political systems fall in line with biblical principles? This is obviously a topic that we're hearing a lot about a debate in our culture today, and I'm going to answer it the best I can. In my U.S. history class uh, since 1945 in college, the professor stood up on day one and he said this to the class. He said, get this right. Capitalism and socialism are not forms of government, rather they're economical systems. The only reason why the United States won the Cold War was because the capitalist system is stronger than the socialist, or in the case of the Soviet Union, a communist system. So what this question is really getting at is dealing with economical systems. And, and fundamentally, rudimentally, very, very crudely speaking, in a capitalist system, distribution of capital and means of production are held by individuals, whereas in a socialist system, distribution of capital and means of production are held by groups of people. So what does the Bible say about this? If we're looking to the word of God, what does the Bible say? Well, it doesn't. That's helpful, isn't it? You're like, I thought you were going to answer my questions today. Well, it really doesn't. We need to understand something because this gets to the heart of an issue that is really important for us. We need to understand that every form of government, or in this case, an economical system, there are ideals that are trying to overcome the flaws of human nature due to sin. Think about it. 
How did government start? Well, because there was two cavemen sitting over a fire. One had just killed a deer. The other one was hungry. So he clubbed his buddy over the head, took his deer. And we as a society said, that's not, that's, we shouldn't do that. That's not very beneficial to the rest of us. We should have some social constructs, some, some norms of how we treat each other. And so every single endeavor by humanity is to try to overcome sin. Therefore, no system that humans come up with will be perfect because we're all flawed. Furthermore, no matter how idealistic a system is, it will never be able to undo the effects of sin on humanity. So in our specific question, in the case of economical systems, there's no economical system which means everyone's going to prosper. Nor is there an economical system that will eliminate poverty altogether. Neither is a system that is going to remove corruption or greed. However, what you do see is that we have to have some sort of system, flawed or otherwise, for a functioning society. And when you look at Scripture, there are some principles that we can hold on to. In the Old Testament, property was dealt with and the means of production were held by individual families for generation after generation after generation. In fact, you could not sell property in the Old Testament days like you do today. It would be more of a leasing of a property based upon a 50-year revolving system. And every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the property would have to go back to the original owners, the original family that owned that ground. Individuals in Scripture are commanded to work hard. And if you don't work, you don't eat. So there's some personal responsibility. You are to take care of yourself. And you look at a lot of these principles, and they look like capitalistic ideals. The harder you work, the, the more off you have. However, God also commanded the people to leave the edges of their field unharvested for the poor. And every seven years, there was supposed to be a Sabbath for the land so that it could have rest, so that the poor could go and glean off those fields. And so one could argue, that's a little bit of a redistribution of wealth. Although there are, you're supposed to work hard, there are poor people and we're supposed to take care of them as a corporate collective group. So uh, it, it may be no surprise to you that I'm a, a conservative in every sense of the world. So uh, make sure that uh, I'm not trying to be biased in this. I'm a free market guy, but that can be dangerous. At the end of the day, the Bible never promotes any form of human government or economy. That's what we need to understand. The Bible doesn't give us a structure for how humans are supposed to accompany this. Instead, the Bible champions God's kingdom. And Jesus told us in Matthew 7 that God's kingdom was to come and his will was to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in the meantime, what we are to do is use the wisdom the best we can and come up with the best forms of human government we can. The scripture doesn't champion uh, capitalism or socialism. The scriptures champion hard work and personal responsibility. Therefore, as individuals, as believers, we're to do all things as unto the Lord, like the scripture says in multiple places. Next question. This is a really good question. Concerning Levitical law, are these still relevant today? And I'm going to go ahead and put another question that was really along the lines in the same one. And it says this, there are some rules in the Old Testament Leviticus that are strange. How do I follow what is necessary? How do I know what is necessary to follow? For example, body art. Back then, it was a form of pagan tattooing. Is that relevant today? Others say, do not clip the sides of your hair or clip off the edges of your beard. So this question is submitted to us is really dealing with the law before Jesus. And indeed, if you look through the Old Testament law, you look through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll see some really interesting laws in there. For example, you're not, you are not supposed to wear mixed fabrics. So if you're wearing a, a fabric blend today of like cotton and polyester, polyester or cotton spandex, something like that. If you're wearing spandex at church, that's a whole other thing, right? But if you're wearing a mixture of those things, that would be against the Old Testament law. That's kind of weird, isn't it? So what's going on? To understand these strange laws, we have to understand that the Old Testament was written in a different context and had a different purpose. The Old Testament law was given to the Israelites after they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and God was not giving them a set of rules because he was angry. Rather, he was a loving father that was trying to protect his children. God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he takes them to Mount Sinai. And the very first thing he says to them is this. He says in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
See, God gave people the law so they would not go back into slavery. And the Old Testament law can really be broken down into three sections, if you will. The first section you have is the moral law. So when we read the Ten Commandments, that's a moral law. Don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat on your wife, don't covet. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Then you have the cleanliness laws or the Levitical priesthood laws. And this is where we get some of the strange laws, like don't trim the edges of your beard. Don't wear mixed, you know, fabrics. Don't eat bacon. Like, ooh, that's tough. Then you have the sacrificial law. So if I sin, I bring a goat. Or if I want to give an offering of praise, I bring a drink offering, those type of things. It's important to know that each section was pointing to the work of Christ in one form or fashion. So there was purpose behind these laws. Now, since Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and we're saved by faith in Christ, uh, are we still to live under the Old Testament laws? Well, we need to look at each of these sections at, at one at a time. Do we still live under the moral law? Well, yes, of course. In fact, Jesus raised the bar in the moral law. He said, you've heard it said, don't kill. I'm telling you, don't even have hate in your heart towards your brother. He said, you've heard it said, don't, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even have lust in your heart for someone else. So yes, we still live under the moral law. Jesus raised it. The Levitical law on cleanliness was voided. The purpose of this section of the law was to teach the nation of Israel how to be separate from the world, to show us as believers how we are to be separate from the world. Now, what Jesus did, though, was he undid a lot of those laws. The, 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 the cleanliness laws were undone by Jesus. In fact, he said in Matthew uh, 7, 19, it tells us that all food is clean to eat. It's not what goes into a man's stomach that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart. Therefore, we can eat bacon. Come on, somebody. I'm excited about it. You can also eat crab legs. Yes. All right. So all that stuff's good. That was, further, that was further solidified. Peter had a, had a vision where he saw all these wild animals on, uh, on a sheet, and God is saying, kill and eat, and it was talking about taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but in that same process, we see that those laws are undone. So now you can have Ronnie's head cheese, or you can have you know, a crab boil, or a uh, crawdad boil. All those things run done. So we don't live under the cleanliness laws today. The last section of the, the law was a sacrificial law, which was fulfilled by Christ. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Therefore, we don't kill goats and we don't kill sheep anymore. So the, the, the question, the crux of it then becomes, the moral law is the only part of the law that I'm obligated to fulfill. Well, how do I know which was the moral law? Well, when you read through the New Testament, it tells you what the moral law is. It tells you the things that you are to do, how you're to treat your neighbors, the things that God's requiring us not to do, and those are the laws that we follow. It's a great question. Third question. It seems that churchgoers are falling prey to conspiracy theories and fake news stories. How can we guard our hearts against sensationalism? Boy, this is relevant today, isn't it? Because, man, you, every time you turn on the TV or every time you look at Facebook, you can see a brand new thing that's out there that everybody's trying to push, right? So we all know exactly where this question's coming from, and we've all probably had this in our heart before. Well, Ephesians chapter number 4, 11 through 16 says this, And he gave some to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, and until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it is builds itself up in love. So how do we avoid sensationalism? Well, what this verse is telling us and this passage is telling us is that God gave the fivefold offices to the church. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher gave those offices to the church in order to build up the church to reflect Christ. 
And furthermore, what this passage is telling us is when that is working properly, that the people, the, the church as a whole, isn't tossed back and forth by every cunning or crafty teaching that comes along. We're rock solid. Now, here's my theory on this. The reason why there's a lot of sensationalism in the church today and in our teaching is because social media has given a platform to quote-unquote teachers who haven't earned the right to have that platform. Think about it. And Brother Loki, when he was a pastor uh, back at Skytook for 28 years, for him to become a pastor he ha- and to have a platform, he had to go through a, uh, schooling, he had to go through a credentialing process, then he had to get some church to hire him, and then when he was up there, we knew we could trust the words coming out of his mouth. Why? Because there was a long list of people that were validating that God had called him to ministry. In my day, if I want to get on and call myself a pastor, all I have to do is start a Facebook account or a YouTube channel and start making videos. There's no credibility. There's no validation whatsoever. I can spew any sort of vomit that I want to, and people will buy into it. Why? Because sensationalism sells. Now, what you see in Scripture is that the church worked very hard at making sure the people who were teaching has some credibility and some validation. If you read through the New Testament, there was a a process in sending out church leaders. Someone wouldn't just walk up and say, hey, I'm the pastor here. I'm going to start teaching now. That's not how that worked. There's various scriptures you can look at that see that through discernment of the Holy Spirit, the church commissioned its leadership. Let me prove this to you. If you go read the the book of 1 John, we studied this in the deep dive. And if you were there, you will remember that the book of 1 John was written to refute heretics that were going to different churches, getting people led astray. And in fact, John said, these people were not sent from us. Stop listening to them because we as church leadership, they're telling you a false gospel and we didn't send them to you. Furthermore, Paul talks to Timothy how he was confirmed in the ministry. Timothy was confirmed by the laying on of hands. What is that saying? Is that that there were people who were mature in the faith, looked at Timothy, and saw that God had a plan and a calling on his life, and they were confirming that. Paul himself, we can read about this in Acts 13, was commissioned by the church. The Holy Spirit had revealed that Paul and Barnabas were to go into all the world and preach. And what did the church do? They fasted, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them to send them out. So as the individuals that we're listening to, we need to check for the credibility of the person that we're listening to. How do we do that? You ask yourself, under whose authority are they preaching and teaching? Or said another way, who is mature in the faith that has laid their hands on them, so to speak, and confirmed their ministry. Here's another test that you can ask. Are they preaching from the Bible, or are they proof texting everything they're saying? There's a difference. When you listen to people, you need to listen to people who open the Bible, read a passage, and start teaching you the passage. If you're listening to a preacher, and he's talked for 30 minutes before he cracked open his Bible, and he finally gets there, what he's doing is called proof texting. And what that means is he came up with an idea that he wanted to tell you, and then he found a a Bible verse to make it sound like it was from the Bible. And maybe it is biblical, maybe it isn't, but here's the reality. When you start proof texting, you can say anything you want and find a Bible verse to back it up. Why? Because you can take almost anything out of context. But when you open Scripture and you read the passage and you read the, 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 the context of it, and then you start preaching from that passage, then you're giving somebody the Word of God. Next question. You know what? Let's go online. Has anybody sent in some questions? Let's see what we got here. You guys have sent in some questions. Ah, here we go. This is a great question. We've all had this before. How do I respond to someone who's going through something difficult or is constantly negative? I want to be there for them and encourage them, but not alienate them with toxic positivity. That's a great question because we've all had people in our life that are struggling or they're constantly negative or, or that they're constantly degrading themselves. I mean, or they're constantly making bad decisions or they're doing the wrong thing. And you're like, okay, how do I, how do I help this person without, you know, uh, enabling their bad decisions or how do I, how do I correct them without breaking them? That's the question all of us are probably going to have relationships in our life where we're asking ourselves this question. And obviously, one answer doesn't fit every single context or every single scenario. But here's the thing that I've always told church leadership, and here's, here it is right here. Earn the right to be heard. 
So your level of relationship with that person is going to dictate how much you can say to them. Furthermore, you have to understand that people have to be in a place to receive the truth. Just because you're being told the truth doesn't mean that you're in a place where you want to receive the truth. Let's pretend that I'm going out and I decide, all right, I'm going to get myself in a lot of debt. Okay, I have good friends in this church. Let's say uh, I'm sitting there with Brad and Brad uh, sees me do this and I go out and I get a brand new pickup truck. I mean, with all the stuff in it, 75,000. I mean, it's a nice truck. Okay, big payment, eight, nine hundred dollars a month. I don't know what it would be, but it'd be a lot. So I got eight, nine hundred dollar payment there and I'm going around and I decide, you know what? I need I need all the guns that they can sell. So I go get a bunch of credit cards. I just keep buying all this stuff. I mean, I'm making poor financial decisions and Brad's over there looking at it saying, man, He's going to get himself in trouble. We have a pretty good relationship. So as a friend, he sets me down and says, hey, man, I've just been seeing some things where you're making some decisions I think are going to come back and bite you. Is this a good thing to do or not? Now, how I respond is going to dictate how he can proceed with that conversation. If I respond with, mind your own business, well, he's done all he can do and he just needs to step away. So you might have a family member who you love and you say, you know what? I, I feel like I've earned the right to be heard by this person. I've invested in them. I love them. Perhaps you're even feeling a leading, like it's now time to have that conversation. And you go to them and you try to have that conversation. If they shut that conversation down, there's nothing else you can do. You have to back away. You have to back away. And then just trust that the Lord can do the, do the work inside of their heart. It's very difficult. Jesus is our example in this. Look at how many times he gave people the truth and they rejected the truth. And what Jesus never did is he never chased somebody down, got them in a headlock and say, no, you're going to listen to me. He gave them the truth. And when they had the truth, he stepped back and they could take it and they could apply it or not. How many times did Jesus say, he who has ears, let him hear. What's the new youth pastor's Facebook? You guys are so impatient. My goodness. If the book of Revelation is true, how do we know it's true? Well, we know it's true because it's written by God. Of all the, all the books in the Bible, I mean, that one's like overtly, God says, write this down, write that down. The question not is, is not, is it true? The question is, how do we interpret it? And that's always been the struggle for anything that's prophetic in nature in Scripture, is that we know it's the Word of God, but we're sitting here trying to guess what that means until we actually see it play out. I mean, think of all the prophecies talking about Jesus, I mean, one of the most basic fundamental that every Christian on the planet believes is that Jesus was born of a virgin. But imagine if you're sitting there in Isaiah's days and it's saying a virgin is going to have a child, you're thinking, well, now hang on a second. How's that work? You know, I mean, Mary was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. The angel says, hey, you're going to have a child. She says, hang on a second. Okay. You know, I mean, I know a little bit of biology. I've never been with a man. How's this going to work? That raises some questions. So we know that it's true because it's the word of God. The struggle becomes the interpretation of that truth. And the reality is, is that there are a boatload of interpretations for the book of Revelation. We're not even going to go down that road. Here's what I would tell you this. There's a couple of things that you can hang your hat on that almost universally every single Christian believes. Number one is that someday everything's going to end. Number two, you want to be with Jesus when that happens. And number three, he's going to make it all right at the end. The order of all that stuff is highly debatable. We won't go down that time because we don't have that kind of time. But I would say this. I would say this. You want to be on Jesus' side. Amen? All right. Very good. Next question. If you commit suicide, do you automatically go to hell? Now, believe it or not, this is probably a question that I have gotten over the tenure of my ministry more than any other question. And here's the unfortunate thing about this is that I cannot turn to a passage and verse and show you the answer to that question. If you were to say, do people who commit suicide go to hell? I can't say, all right, turn to John chapter five. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to read the principles of Scripture and say, okay, what would this, how, would this, how would this translate for this particular situation? We know very clearly from the commandments of Scripture not to commit murder and that all life is precious in the sight of God. And in fact, I read that passage to you twice over this series where it's talking about how God created humanity in his image and in his likeness. And so murder is an act of, of desecration to the image of God. 
However, when it comes to the issue of suicide, it's just not that simple because there's so many factors that might be in play. Mental illness, overwhelming grief that causes us to lose mental faculties, a fear of capture and torture on a battlefield, perhaps, or maybe someone who's in terrible pain due to terminal illness. There, there are so many factors that come into play that we cannot automatically go and say, well, here's the bottom line. That's where ultimately God is the judge of all life and we are not. However, I would say this, barring those extremes, I would want to give you a word of encouragement and a word of warning. The first is this, a word of encouragement. As believers, and we just sang it, we have a faithful promise of God in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's what we sing about. That's what we put our hope in. That's what we proclaim. That's what we lift our voices for. That's what we read the scripture is that God is sovereign enough that no matter what I'm going through, that he is going to work all things out. Why? Because God is good. And so in the feelings of grief and the feelings of fear and depression, all those things are very real. And in those moments, we have to keep our focus on God and his goodness. In the worst places of our life, we have to trust that somehow, someway, he will turn that terrible tragedy into good. We don't always understand how that's going to happen. We don't understand why we go through things. And I'm not sure even on this side of heaven, we're going to understand everything. I don't know how you can. And I'm not even going to promise you that on the other side of heaven, you're going to understand everything either. But here's what the one thing that we have to understand more than anything else is that God is good. And he's given us a promise that those who love him, all things are going to work out. That's a word of encouragement. Now, here would be the word of warning from that same verse. As a believer, would you want to stand before God after taking your life and saying, I didn't trust you to uphold your end of the bargain? That's the word of warning that we have to take. Now, one last note. I would say this. If you're in a place watching online or you're here where you're contemplating taking your own life, the worst thing that you can do is start feeling shame for that and seek help. It's amazing when you read through Scripture how many men of God requested to die. I mean, the most famous is Elijah. He's standing there before God. He says, God, take me. I'm done. And what did God do? In every instance, never granted the request. Not one time did God grant the request for someone to die. Instead, God sent them provision. And so I would say this, seek help because God does have a plan and he's equipped people to help you. And when you trust him, he can lead you to the right people. Second question, kind of along the same lines as that, is how do I stop despising myself? How do I overcome depression? This is another one of those questions that I get quite often because depression is an issue that's facing countless Americans and Christians. Uh, there's a false narrative that is perpetuated that once you're saved, you should never suffer from depression again. However, I believe that's a false assumption. Like how many of you during this COVID, you say, I'm probably borderline depressed sitting at home for two weeks at a time, not getting to go out, not getting to eat. And we're sitting here and we're all getting on each other's nerves, right? It's a real thing. So even though we're saved and our, 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 our souls are eagerly awaiting redemption, as the scripture says, there's still a reality that we struggle. We struggle with sin. We struggle with suffering. We struggle with our health. All those things are struggles that we all go through. I mean, we could take a poll here in the room. How many of you have suffered in the last week of your health? Raise your hand. Let's be honest. How many of you have an ache or pain this morning when you got out of bed? Right? So we're saved. We're going to heaven. We know that someday we're going to have a glorified body. But it's not yet realized because my foot still hurts, right? I got that trick knee, you know? I mean, all those things are realities. So why would we not assume that there are going to be certain people that also face depression, face struggle because their minds, for whatever reason, there's, there's things that still cause these things. It's still a struggle, just like... My trick knee is a struggle, so too can 
be mental health. No one chooses to have cancer. No one chooses to lose a loved one. And no one that I know chooses to struggle and fight depression. So how do we overcome this? Well, first, constantly build yourself up in faith in Jesus Christ that comes from the word and from prayer. If I have a trick knee and I have problems, I go to the doctor. If my blood pressure is out of whack, I go get some medicine. If I'm struggling with depression, the first prescription I need to take is a steady diet of the Word of God and a prayer. When you get the spiritual disciplines in your life and you're connecting with God and you're reading His Word, His love letter to you, it can start to do something supernaturally in your heart and your mind that you cannot do any other way. When Jesus was tempted, tempted, he went to the Word. And when we're struggling, we need to consume the Word. I might currently be depressed or self-loathing. However, when I read the Word of God, I read about the depths of Christ's love for my life, and I understand my, that my self-loathing is not rooted from God, but rather it's rooted from an enemy. And so I learn a new way of thinking. But Romans 12 tells us to renew our mind daily. So every day I start reading this Word, I start seeing the value that I have before Christ. And I learn a new way of thinking. Second thing I recommend is this, is a good Christian psychologist. I am convinced that counseling is a gift from God. I cannot point to you in a passage, but I will tell you this, that Romans 12 tells us that encouragement is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, there are people who God has gifted to teach you, to equip you, in order how to overcome this, and I encourage you. Is it expensive to go see a Christian psychologist? Absolutely. Does it take intention and time? Absolutely, especially if you're here, because you're going to have to drive somewhere, Rogers, Joplin, Tulsa. Uh, if there's some local, I, I, I'm not aware of them. There, there could be great people here. But it is going to take intentionality, time, and it's going to take money. But if you needed back surgery, would you go see a back surgeon? Of course. If you had cancer, would you go to an oncologist? Of course. So why not go see a mental doctor that can help you with your mental health? No shame. Feel no shame. How can I feel welcome in a church where people say that if I'm a Democrat or if I voted for Biden, I'm not a real Christian? Well, I'd hope that none of us are saying that to anybody in, in this church because that would be a problem. And I would tell you this, that my expectation as a pastor would be that our our people would not make those sort of statements. Um, I'm going to answer this question, probably get myself in trouble in the process, but that's okay because we're in an uncomfortable series and I'm committed to answering uncomfortable questions. And I need to acknowledge my bias from the beginning. And I'm a little bit, this is just my personal pet peeve. I think it's very, uh, very almost impossible for people to be unbiased. We all have theories, experiences, backgrounds that shape our thoughts, and so we're going to give answers based upon from our perspective. And so my bias is I'm a conservative in every sense of the word, because it makes sense in my mind. Fiscal issues, I'm a conservative. Social issues, I'm a conservative. Uh, government philosophy, I'm a conservative. That's, that might be tainting my answer, but just go with it. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He said very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me tell you how the scripture does not read. No one comes to the Father except for those who voted for the Republican Party. <laughs> okay. The deciding factor, if a person is a Christian, is their confession of faith in their Lord and Savior uh, Jesus, as Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. Political affiliation is not part of the equation. Faith in Jesus Christ determines if you're a Christian or not. Now, I'm just speculating here, but why would someone say you're not a Christian if you voted for somebody like Joe Biden? Well, probably the reason why somebody would make that accusation is because he affirms social issues that are contrary to Scripture, such as homosexual marriage or abortion. So some would argue that no Christian would vote for someone who promotes these policies. Now, the rebuttal, because I've seen these arguments play out, the rebuttal from someone who's a Christian who would vote for a Democrat would say this, well, I am fiscally liberal, but I'm a social conservative. And I know people like that. They, they would say, look, 
I, I believe that government can do good work for people. And that there are some liberal policies that are good for the nation. They're, they're Christ-like, if you will. The other rebuttal that I've seen in this conversation is people who argue against the Republican Party and say, look, you guys talk a big game about being pro-life, but you never do anything about it anyways. You, you, you had the House, the White House, and the Senate in 2016. You had all the branches of government. You didn't even attempt to fix the problem of abortion. So my vote in this issue isn't making a difference anyways. So I'm going to vote for somebody who I think is a better candidate. All that to say this, it is possible, completely possible, and we all need to wrap our minds around this, completely possible for a Bible-loving, Jesus-loving people to vote with their consciences and vote different than us, whoever us is. There are Christians who are Democrats who say, I can't believe somebody vote for Donald Trump. And there are people who are Republicans who say, I can't believe there's somebody who vote for Joe Biden. So the test of Christianity and the test of heaven is not where you casted your vote, but is in Jesus alone. But we have to vote our values and we have to vote biblical truth. I would agree with you 100%. And how I understand things and my bias, as I confessed to you a moment ago, is to vote a conservative line. But who am I to judge someone else's salvation based upon their vote? There are, there are a lot of Christians who voted for Trump that are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And at the end of the day, Jesus said you can test uh, uh, the, fruit, the tree by the fruit. As far as I'm concerned, being a pastor of this local body, anybody's welcome. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, you're all welcome. We don't baptize people based upon their vote. We baptize people based upon their confession of faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What does the Bible say about nationalism? Does America first align with Christian principles? Patriotism is a good thing. In my humble opinion, I think patriotism is a great thing. Patriotism can also be a concerning thing. It's good to love your country, and I think it's good to be thankful for where God has positioned you. I mean, let's be honest. At the end of the day, we, we look around and we say, man, there's a lot of problems in America. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in America, but where else would you want to go? There's nowhere else I'd want to go. I mean, especially for those of you who've been around and you've flown to different places, there is nowhere else you want to live, in my humble opinion, than the United States of America. It is awesome. Okay? I love America. God bless America, man. I've been, I've been around the world a little bit, and I'm telling you, nowhere else I'd want to live than America. Patriotism is awesome. I think in the ideal of patriotism is the love for your fellow man and moral ideals. I mean, in the name of God and country, people have fought together and protected one another. There are countless stories of soldiers on a battlefield jumping on a grenade for their buddy standing next to them. That exhibits, that teaches us that greater love has no than this, lay down life for friends. But patriotism can be a bad thing if your patriotism causes you to withhold the gospel or the good to those that are around you. That was the prophet Jonah's problem. If you go read the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, Jonah allowed his patriotism to trump his faith. He was unwilling to go to the Ninevites because the Ninevites were the enemies of his homeland. And so he ran from God and his calling until God finally made him get swallowed by a big fish and he finally repented. So that, short, that sort of nationalism that would hinder the advancement of the, God, of the kingdom of God would be bad. We have to have our orders right as Christians. Jesus, his kingdom, and then everything else. Having said that, I don't see that being a real problem for American Christians today from my perspective. Um, we have to understand that within this question, there is a reality that wasn't present in Scripture. And that reality is this, is that modern technology has made the world smaller. So a lot of issues are a modern concern that the Bible doesn't necessarily address. And so when you look at the principles of Scripture, I don't see anything wrong with people being patriots or for an American government to push an America first mentality, because that's kind of the role of government. Government has a job and a responsibility to make decisions that are best for its people that it is to serve. It's kind of like how you and I make the best decisions for our families. We should be generous. And when we see other people in need, we should help them. But if we're so generous that I'm taking food and my son hasn't eaten in a week, that's a problem. My priorities are out of 
out of alignment. And it's the same thing with the government. I don't see anything wrong with a, a patriot approach. I don't see anything in scripture. It's silent about it as long as we're fulfilling the Great Commission. All right, let's see if you guys have sent any more online. Oh, eight new responses. Here we go. Will we have an answer for who voted? No, not anytime soon. There's one of my questions that talks about the revealed will of God or the hidden will of God. This one's still hidden from the rest of us. We have no idea. Will we be held accountable for who we vote for? That's a tough question. That's tough. Here's what I'd say to that. You, I, again, I think that there's Bible-loving, Jesus-loving people who vote their conscience who can vote either direction. I think at the end of the day, here's what you have to do. Pray. Say, God, what do you want me to do with this? I've been given a privilege to vote. Lead me who I should vote for. What we have to understand about government at the end of the day is Jesus and Scripture are abundantly clear. Authority, government authority established by God. If Joe Biden is president on January 20th, that's Inauguration Day, I think. I'm doing that off the top of my head. That's who God wanted there. If it's Donald Trump, that's who God wanted there. And we as Christians are to pray and respect that authority. Pastor Austin, what's your favorite way to prepare a turkey? Definitely deep fried. Okay, you have to deep fry the turkey. Now, a smoked turkey is really good. But the thing about a smoked turkey is that you can go to really any good barbecue restaurant and get a smoked turkey. But fried turkey is a lot more, there's a lot more uh, uh, investment there because you got to go buy all the oil and you got to heat it up and you got to try not to burn down your garage, which this is completely, this is not in the Bible. But people are always saying, well, aren't you worried about burning down your garage? No, I'm not. I've done this a lot because there's two things you need to do if you're going to fry a turkey. Number one, you need to dry the turkey. You're going to use an entire roll of paper towels. All right. When you think it's dry, keep drying it some more. Because if you've ever thrown an ice cube inside of a hot vat of oil, you know that's a problem. Okay. So make sure the turkey is very dry. The second thing you need to do is shut the fire off before you put the turkey in there. Because people are like, what if it boils over and catches everything on fire? Listen, that oil is 400 degrees. Uh, it's not going to cool down in the two minutes it's going to take you to put the turkey in there. And it's going to cool down anyways. So shut the fire off and slowly lower the turkey in there. <laughs> And it will be a wonderful experience for you. What would you say or what would be your response be if your senior pastor is convinced that the Holy Spirit is fragile asking for a friend? <laughs> I love that last part. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is God. He's not fragile. I mean, there's, there's literally nothing in Scripture that would indicate that God is fragile. God doesn't get his feelings hurt like you and I get our feelings hurt. Can you offend God? Can you grieve the Holy Spirit? Of course. The Bible is very clear on that. You can see in the Old Testament particularly that when people reject God time and time again, he, he feels hurt. He compares himself to a, fa a husband with an adulterous spouse time and time again. But, but God is not controlled by emotion the way that you and I are controlled by emotion on whim. So the Holy Spirit is not fragile, and he's sovereign. If someone is really nice and almost never sins but hates God, would they go to hell? Of course, because again, the, the, the question is not morality. The question is not, have I done more good things than bad things? The question is not, am I a good person? The scripture is abundantly clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So by our nature, we're all going to sin. We've all done it. We've all done it since Adam and Eve. We're all going to sin. And when we sin, we've committed cosmic treason to God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Sin is fundamentally looking at God saying, I understand your way, but my way is better. I'm smarter than you, and I'm defecting from who you are. And once you commit treason, if we commit treason in our country, that's punishable by death. And we see the same thing in Scripture. Therefore, the only way that one goes to heaven, as I just read in this passage a moment ago from Jesus, is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to heaven. No one goes to the Father except through him. Is everything in the Bible metaphors or, or everything actually happened? For example, did Jonah truly live in a well for three days? And if it's not all metaphors, how do we uh, dictate what is and what isn't? That's a great question. So is there analogy, illustration of Scripture? Yes. 
Um, you see particularly a lot of the prophets, they're metaphoric in their language. You see some metaphoric uh, language, symbolic language in Psalms, you know, as a deer pants for water. You know, obviously the writer wasn't a deer, you know. Those t- Jesus said, I'm a door. He's not a piece of wood, you know, those type of things. So there, there is some. Uh, but what we have to understand is that in Scripture, what we're reading most of the time is accounts. So we'll just look at the context. How's it written? What did Jonah live in a, in a fish? Yeah, because that's what the Bible said. They said they took him and they threw him over into the water and he swallowed by a fish. Now, how do we wrap our mind around that happening? I don't know. I'm not responsible for that. I'm not, I don't know how Jesus rose from the dead. But if we believe that God rose Jesus from the dead, and again, that's the crux of salvation, believing in faith, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus the Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, not one other person on the planet has ever done that. So if we can believe that miracle, then why can't we believe that somehow God supernaturally kept Jonah alive inside of a fish? If God raised Jesus from the dead, why can't we believe that God sent a global flood that covered the entire world? If God raised Jesus from the dead, why can't we believe that God could make an axe head float? Because here's the thing we have to understand. When we look at these things, we're like, yeah, but I don't understand the biology and the physics of how this happened. The fact of the matter is, we can't make, Dr. Dan cannot, if I'm dead for like three days over here and he showed up on the scene, he's going to walk up, kick my dead body and say, hey, nothing I can do here. And he's going to go find a cup of coffee. Why? Because there's nothing he can do. Now, if I fall over, maybe we can do some, you know, some chest compressions, you know, shock me, maybe bring me back. But when somebody's dead for three days, there is no bringing them back. Here's the thing we have to understand about God. For us, we live in a natural order of things that God established. And that is God working, by the way. God works through natural means. He's established those natural means. But it's not difficult for God to work beyond natural order and natural means. It's very easy for him to do. So trying to wrap our minds around these these principles is just understanding who God is. You guys are super quiet. I'm going to go to my next question. How can marriages balance the man being the leader of the household? and women having a sense of equality? This was my favorite question. Whoever asked this question, you, get, you don't get a prize because I don't have a prize, but if I had one, <laughs> I would give it to you. Because I, I have a little bit of a pet peeve, and I haven't addressed it myself, really. We always say that men should be the leader of the home, but we never define what that really means. Men should be the spiritual leader of the home, but we never define what it means. So we've set this, this standard that no one's told us even how to achieve. Here's how I'd answer this question. Roles have nothing to do with equality because roles have nothing to do with value. So, is Bruce more valuable than Sherry? No, of course not. Is Michael more important than Summer? Of course not. Is Austin more important than Charity? Eh, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't get myself in trouble. If anyone has a couch available for this evening, I could, I could use it. In all seriousness, the root of the, here's, here's the root of the confusion for many people on this topic. Are you ready for it? Here's the confusion right here. We have a twisted sense of leadership in the Western culture because we make celebrities out of our leaders. Let's say that again. We have a twisted sense of leadership in Western culture because we make celebrities out of leaders. So when the Bible talks about roles in the home, it's not propagating a Western concept of leadership. Jesus is the example of what spiritual leadership looks like, and it's being a servant. So we talk about leadership in the home, but like I said, we never define it. Here's what we understand when we look at Jesus as our example. The concept of spiritual leadership is not about the husband being the CEO and the wife is in the mailroom. The Bible never gives that command. It never gives that impression. It never even gives that idea of a husband calling the shots while the wife is sitting there quietly. Leadership in the home is not about privilege. Leadership in the home is about responsibility. I'm going to stop and let that sink in. 
Leadership is not about privilege. It's about responsibility. Now, many of you have been in the military. Probably all of us have watched a military documentary. I was not in the military, but I could imagine from what I have, uh, what I've witnessed from documentaries that the most nerve wracking assignment in Vietnam would be to be on point walking through the jungle, walking in front of everyone else, clearing a path through the brush with a machete being in the front. You know the whole time, the next bush you whack, there's going to be an enemy soldier there ready to put a bullet in your head. You know the first person's going to get shot is you, but yet you're still on point and you're still clearing the path. That's spiritual leadership in your home. If you want to know what spiritual leadership looks like, that's what it looks like. You're in the jungles of Vietnam with a machete clearing the path for your family, and you're the one who takes the hits first. Congratulations. You're now the spiritual leader of your home. So men... Your wife and your kids need to see you reading your Bible. They need, you, they need to see you going into your prayer closet. Your kids need to hear you praying over them in the evenings. They need to see you honoring the Lord and honoring your wife. I got to be here for the women's conference. I want to give a shout out to Annie Perkins. And she talked, she was to do a breakout talking about raising kids. And there's one thing that she said that I wanted to say amen over and over again and yell it out. And I wish everybody could hear it because as a youth pastor, what I've seen is the truth. The kids who still follow Jesus when they leave their homes had parents who lived it out in front of them. They didn't tell them that they should love Jesus. They didn't tell them that they should read their Bible. The kids who still followed Jesus when they graduated had parents whom they saw read their Bible, whom they saw pray, whom they saw live a Christian life. They, they, they lived among that. Because you learn through osmosis, you don't learn through lecturing to a child. And so as spiritual leaders, husbands have to set that ground. Husbands are going to be judged at a higher standard. And we need to recognize this, and we need to take responsibility for it. We've got time for another question. You guys good? A question or two more? You good? Yeah. Okay. See if we've got any more submissions on the line. Oh, eight more. Man. Are there demon-possessed people still today? Absolutely. That was a short answer, wasn't it? You're like, can you give us more? <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, I mean, you can open up your, I mean, all you got to do is look around in the world. There are some weird things that happen and you can absolutely open up yourself to demonic oppression, I believe demonic possession. You got to be very careful with the things that you dabble in. You know, I mean, first Corinthians, I'm doing this all the top of my head, so go home and check me. But first Corinthians chapter 11 talks about communion. And he's saying that when we take in communication, communion, it's a participation in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ meaning when we're eating the bread and we're, we're drinking the juice or the wine or what have you, is that there is a spiritual interaction there that's happening where we're identifying with the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the same chapter, he also is talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. And he says, look, if you don't know, well, then you don't know. Don't worry about it. But if you know what you're eating and everybody else in the room knows what you're eating, you don't want to have a participation with demonic activity. So you can absolutely open yourself up to demonic influence and demonic forces when you dabble with it. So are there still people demon-possessed? Absolutely. Now the question is, is how do we know who those people are? Well, that's a very ambiguous question, but at the end of the day, it's, again, you judge a, fruit, a tree by its fruit. You get in the presence of evil, you just know it. I mean, you just sense it, especially as a believer. You're like, ooh, something isn't right here. You just know it. I can't afford to tithe. What should I do? Oh, man, that's a good question. I wish I had more time to answer that. I would tell you this. Tithing is ultimately trusting Jesus. I'm going to butcher this because I don't have time to get into it. But, but here's what I would recommend to you. I would sit down and I would get serious about your budget. I would take a scalpel to everything that you don't need. Charity and I got out of debt one time. That's what we did. I mean, we didn't go out to eat. We didn't do anything fun. I mean, it was, it was a grind for a year and a half. But there was freedom on the other side of that. And if you're at a place where you're so locked in that you can't afford to tithe, then I would say first take the scalpel to everything you don't need, and then let's look at what we have. And then you have to make a decision. 
okay, I'm going to either trust God with my money or I'm not. And I'll just tell you, I can find handfuls of people that I don't know what they give, but I know they tithe, and they tell me, man, God's faithful with that. And I would, I would, the only thing we are to test God in is our money, and, and I, would, I would test him in that. If you have that question you want to talk about more, send me an email or text or a phone call, and we'll talk about it in more depth. Do eggs belong on a hamburger? Of course not. If God wanted the egg on the egg, cows don't lay eggs, okay? So should steak be rare? Yeah, within reason. What's Charity's favorite dessert? Ooh, that's a, t- oh man. She's looking at me. Charity's favorite dessert. Hmm. She really likes peach cobbler. Okay. Man, I got a lot of good questions on here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer two more, and then we're going to wrap it up. How do we, as believers, reconcile what we're taught in Romans 13 when faced with leaders who are hostile to the church? Romans 13, verses 1 2 says this Let every person be subject to government authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. This is a very difficult question with an easy answer, but a difficult application. So the answer is easy. The application is hard. With respect to the authority that God has placed in our life, we are very clearly from this passage not to rebel or resist that authority because we would be resisting God himself. Going back to what I said a moment ago, whoever's president on January 21st when we wake up in the morning, that is who God wanted. And we resist that, we're resisting the institution that God has established. And so there's no authority to be hostile from us as believers to them. The passage was written not under a democracy that we enjoy, but rather by Paul, who was in a culture that was an absolute dictatorship. So if Paul is writing these words by the power of the Holy Spirit in a situation where the government was literally killing them, then we have zero ground to stand on to say we're not going to honor that authority. So we honor authority because honoring authority positions us not for the best political outcome, but for the best mission outcome. Because we are to live quiet, submissive lives so that we can be at peace with all people so that we can tell people about Jesus. Non-believers, when they run into struggle and conflict, they resist and they rebel because they want it their way. But believers established the church in such a unique time where there was a total tyrant and dictatorship, but yet by their actions, they led people to Jesus. This is my last... I can't confirm the validity of the story. I've just heard it so many times. And I imagine at some point something like this happened because there's so many accounts of Christians being martyred during the time of Paul. I mean, Paul himself was martyred. Peter was martyred. All of them were martyred for their faith. But there's an account where these group of Christians would not uh, submit to Roman rule. They would not recant their faith. And so their punishment was that they were going to be taken by a Roman guard. They were going to be taken to a frozen pond, and they were to strip down completely naked, and they were going to be left on the pond overnight to die of exposure. And so they were told to be put out there, and at any time they could leave, they could come off the frozen pond, they could be clothed, and they could sit by a fire and warm. All they have to do is recant their faith in Jesus Christ. And the story goes that none of them did it. They all sat there all night. They slowly started to die one by one. And Roman guards started taking off their armor, stripping down naked and walking onto the ice with them and dying with them. Why? Because they saw their faith. Now, those people could have rebelled. They could have taken a sword, tried to kill the Roman guard. What would have happened? It just made the Roman guard mad. They would have won anyways. Here's the point. The point of that is this, is that we have different priorities as believers. And our priority as believers is to point people to Jesus, no matter what it costs us personally. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around because, and for for me, understand, it's one thing for me to stand on this platform and tell you these things. It's a whole other thing for me to have to live this out myself. So I identify with the struggle. The struggle is real on that. However, here's what I want you to know, is that we have to have a mindset and a priority where Jesus' kingdom comes first. At whatever the expense is, that's the price we pay. Because Jesus didn't call us to give up some things. He said to pick up your cross. 
Meaning, when you choose to follow me, you're choosing to die for this faith. And if we're not willing to make this, he said, then anyone and everyone's welcome, but you must pick up your cross. You must die. So we have to practice trusting the Lord's sovereignty to establish authority. Guys, you have so many questions on here, and I've gone too long already. Um, how do I know the will of God? All these things. I have a lot of notes on here. Here's, I'll try to see if I can't find a way to maybe answer some of these questions in the coming days. But in the meantime, I want to do something for you. I want to introduce you to, to Eli here in just a moment. But what I want to do is I want to pray for you before we transition. And here's what my prayer is going to be for you. We, we look through these questions, and, and I made a little bit of a joke of it a moment ago, that there's, there's a lot of heavy questions, a lot of heaviness. Um, this particular year, we did this last year. This year is a little bit interesting because a lot of those questions had to do with how do we respond to our current situation, our current surroundings. There's a political reality that we're facing that can make us nervous. Here's what I'm going to pray this morning, that the peace of God overwhelms our hearts and that we have clarity of mind. There's so much noise, so many things being thrown out. It can easily pollute our minds, and we can get sideways or distracted from what God's called us to do. But that we'd have a clarity of mind where we can listen to the Holy Spirit, we can listen to his word, and that we can take his kingdom into all the world. 